This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special. Our guest today is the gent whose hand has been behind the tiller of America's Premier Domestic Soccer League, a position he's held since 1999, way back when Genie in a Bottle by Christina Aguilera was number one on the Billboard charts. During his almost two-decade tenure, Major League Soccer has been transformed beyond recognition, growing from a stuttering 10-team NFL stadium lease-reliant operation to a flourishing 22-club and counting fast empire. Quite a job for a boy from Bayside, Queens, who was previously head of NFL Europe. Come on, you Hamburg Sea Devils! (laughs) Sitting here in the flesh, just days before this year's MLS Cup final, a rematch between last year's title contenders Toronto and mighty Seattle, Saturday, 4pm Eastern Time, on ESPN, is a man who's quite literally taking a break from the process of expanding the league. In his 18th season as MLS commissioner, the master of DPs, Gam and Tam, we welcome for a State of the Union pod, Mr. Don Garber. (laughs) How do I speak after that, man? It's good to (laughs) see you. You must be exhausted. That's it, I'm done. It's all you (laughs) from now on in. At time of recording, we are five days away from the final. Seattle-Toronto 2, the rematch. This time it's for reals. Toronto, watching them, they've assembled intentionally a kind of super team, luring players from the European leagues. Giovinco, Michal Bradley, Josie. If they can't get over the hump this second time of trying, what does it say about the competitive nature of the rest of the league? And it says that it isn't just about what you spend. It's how you put together a team. It's how you coach. It's what your environment. It's the culture of your locker room. It's the connectivity between all your players. We want to have a league where there is diversity of thought, where teams are given the tools that they can put together, the recipe, if you will, to try to be successful, and they win or lose based on the decisions they make. The LA Galaxy spent a lot of money this year didn't turn out so well. Years prior, it did turn out well for them. So that idea that you can't buy success, you've got to earn it, is a big part of what we think is the MLS brand. For a moment, I do want to take you back to a dark night in our nation's history, Don. Feels like we've got so many to choose from. But don't worry, we will stick (laughs) to sports. The night of October 10th, even reading it, I still can't believe it. Trinidad and Tobago 2 the United States won. Where were you, Don? Set the scene for how you watched. It was a day after my 60th birthday, so I remember it well. I was going to travel down with the team to Trinidad and opted to spend that day with my brother who was 61 that day, similar birthdays, and I watched it at home, and it tore my heart out. I'm a fan at heart. I love the sport. I love our national team. It is the only time somebody who is a league suit you can't root for a team when you're a commissioner, but you can root for your country. I feel that way about Canada now because I have to, right? You've got to root for the Canadian <laughs> national team. 
But ultimately, Roger, it was a sad moment. I mean, I came into the sport in 99. My first experience at a World Cup was 2002. I remember being in Korea and seeing the U.S. beat Portugal. Lamar Hunt was sitting behind me, I might add, my owner, and I had better seats than he did. And we were going back to the hotel on a bus, and he was crying, you know, seeing our guys stand up to Figo. So it's a missed opportunity. It's heartbreaking. The league will miss the opportunity of actually being able to celebrate it. Our marketing company will lose tens of millions of dollars because we represent the U.S. national team and we'll lose sponsors. Sarkin United Marketing. Marketing. Every time you have trauma in life, I've thought about this personally and I think about it professionally, you could run in the rabbit hole and never come out or you could use it as an opportunity to get stronger, get bolder, get your act together and then try to be better when you come out. And that's what I think our league will be. That's what I think our federation will be. I think we'll have new leadership at our federation. I think that's going to be empowering for all. And maybe if we didn't fail, we wouldn't be in a position now where we'll have a new beginning. How many hours did you sleep after that apocalyptic moment? Because I couldn't sleep at all for about a week. But right after the game at about 4 a.m. in the morning, I actually did. I thought about you, no doubt, being up, nursing the pain, looking out, dark night style on the city in the wake of loss. I sent a note to Michael and Josie immediately. Those are the first two notes that I sent uh, because I know how devastating it was for them. Saying what? It's a heartbreak and I feel for you and I know you gave it your all. And I didn't anticipate that they'd be going into stadiums and getting booed. I think that's awful because I don't think it's their fault. I think it's a systemic fault, right? And that's something that we've all got to work on improving and achieving a different path forward. I didn't sleep much. That should be expected. I don't think our fans slept much, and I don't think Bruce Arena slept. I don't think Sunil slept. You talk about systemic, and in the wake of Lost Don, everyone's got an opinion about what went wrong and what the biggest lesson American soccer should take from it. We've had a month and a half to let it sink in now. What's your biggest takeaway? Qualifying isn't a birthright. And while soccer has been ascending in our country for quite some time, and our league has been ascending as well in many cases, I'd like to believe driving some of that ascension, we should never forget that nobody owes us anything. To think that a country like Trinidad doesn't earn the right to be able to be competitive with us is blind arrogance, frankly. Getting whacked upside the head with a two-by-four, like I would say when I was growing up, sometimes uh, wakes you up to realize that things aren't exactly the way you think they are. Have you spoken to Bruce Arena about the loss? He was one of the first guys I've spoken to. I have enormous respect for Bruce. You know, we didn't get along all that well, as coaches don't always get along with commissioners. That's part of the price you pay to sit in the seat, and that's to be expected. I didn't get along with Jurgen. I didn't get along with Bruce. When he came back into becoming national team coach, our relationship just got so close. I speak to him all the time and seek his advice more often than I ever had in the previous 16 years. What did he tell you? He said that we didn't get it done, and I take full responsibility for it. If you had the power to go back to the future, knowing what you know now, would you have made a different decision about bringing back the likes of Alejandro Bedoya, Tim Howard, Jermaine Jones to the United States? I don't separate those three, Roger, from Landon coming back when he was playing over in England or Michael coming back or Josie coming back or so many other players coming back. I believe in my heart, and I believe it till the day I die, that Major League Soccer can help any player's career if they're in the right mindset, they're given an opportunity to play, an opportunity to succeed, an opportunity to lead, an opportunity to be tested. 
Is it a better environment for Michael to be in Toronto than me playing or maybe playing in Roma? So you're saying it's better for Michael to be in Toronto than it was in Roma? I believe so. Because he has an opportunity to play, an opportunity to lead, which he wasn't able to do in Roma at that time when he was making that decision. Here's what I worry about, about the U.S. loss. I'm always thinking about the next audience, the, the kind of growth audience. And, and right now, outside of our soccer bubble, I don't know how many people have realized in America the U.S. haven't qualified. And when they do discover that, really in June 2018, when the World Cup kicks off, there's going to be a backlash, yep. which is going to be sizable. It's going to be lasting. MLS wasn't to blame for U.S. soccer's failure. If anything, the league has done more to make CONCACAF more competitive. I mean, you just watch Roman Torres, but it's now going to pay a price. When the league comes back post-World Cup, July 2018, fair or not, it's going to be a corollary victim of U.S. soccer's failure. How do you think about that? And, and what, what do we do to try and proactively minimize damage? You know, I don't agree that the league is going to be held any more accountable for the loss than anyone else in the system. I think there'll always be pundits. You know, boy, if Clint wasn't playing here, maybe the goal would have gone in as opposed to not. I just think that's ridiculous. The point which I agree 100% with you is that we're going to miss an opportunity to get those people who don't really know that much about the game to align with their friends in bars and restaurants and in Grand Park in Chicago and Bryant Park in New York and on Fox and on Univision or Telemundo to be able to experience the World Cup around the red, white, and blue competing against the Germanys of the world or the Englands of the world, and that's a loss. It's a miss. What are you going to do? You could suck your wounds and cry about it, or you could figure out, just get through it and figure out how we get better so that it doesn't happen when we've got to play in Qatar in 22. Is there a number you can put to that loss? I remember when Mexico almost didn't qualify for 2014, like the numbers being banded around for the damage to their brand, to their league. It was about we, 250 million. Is yeah, it? we haven't done that, Raj, so I, I don't know the answer to that. Do, do you feel on the youth development tip that MLS has to react to the U.S. failure and begin to incentivize clubs to make room to play younger American players more than they have so that they can develop? Or is that U.S. soccer's job, not MLS's? You know, it's a good question. I think if you were to ask five fans, they'd all have, yes, the league's role is to develop our national team, therefore take roster spots and starting spots and have players that are not potentially good enough to play and put them on the field so that maybe they'd be better national team players. Ask Bruce Arena that, and he would tell you when he was an MLS coach, that's ridiculous. Do you really want me to have a team that's not going to be as competitive as it needs to be to be able to beat the Seattle Sounders? Because if I don't beat them, by the way, I'm going to be out of work. So I think that there is a mix of those kinds of factors that need to be decided. How do we incentivize our teams to spend more money on development? How do we give them more roster room? How do we have better strength and opportunity at the USL? We've got a close relationship. How do we invest more money in partnership with our federation to have better programs? And maybe there are some on-field things that need to be looked at in partnership with the federation to figure out whether that's a piece of the puzzle. But it's not a silver bullet solution, without doubt. This season, MLS is 22nd. Of the 18 full seasons you've overseen as the soccer dom, how does it compare? What would you give it as a grade? Well, in light of the fact it was the year we didn't qualify, it's not going to win the year, right? Because it is that important to our league's history. Then you add the incredible successes, unanticipated 
global success in Atlanta. It would captured the hearts and minds of an entire city in a market that nobody ever expected soccer would succeed. A great team, the Almirons and the Martinez's, and giving Andrew Carlton an opportunity to not just play, but to actually succeed. You look at adding Minnesota and starting off so poorly and people thinking, oh no, what have we done here? And then having Minnesota actually have a very, very exciting season and have lots of promise going into next year. We have a new stadium in Orlando. So overall, I think it was a great year, but I wish we didn't have the World Cup failure in the middle of it. Atlanta United, MLS debutants, average attendance 48,200 higher than any team in any sport outside of the NFL. Remarkable, 71,874 for their finale. Remarkable. Can other MLS teams do something like Atlanta? Seriously. Or is the Atlanta playbook unique to that area and that time? Or really only applicable to new clubs starting in their communities afresh? Two different things there. First is we never thought we'd have another Seattle. Seattle was always viewed as an unbelievable success story, a unique market, ripe for the sport, great history with the Sounders and the NASL, terrific ownership, lots of success, made the playoffs every year, bringing back Clint. So we never expected it to happen again, and it happened in Atlanta. And so I think that speaks to there is no formula, there is no recipe. There are things that are going to happen in an individual market, no different than any other league here in the U.S. or even in the Premier League or in the Bundesliga or any other league but around is the that, world. Is that a one sui generis to that market or are you now looking at these new teams you've got four team owners coming in to pitch you tomorrow right. you now can you meet that is 17,000 no, that's not that's not the objective the objective is to be in a small soccer stadium to sell it out every game like they do in Kansas City they've sold out every game since they've built Children's Mercy Park to be able to be connected in the community which we've done in Atlanta we've done in many other markets that connection that regionality let's get really powerful locally. And then when you get local, you can get out from your city, get into the suburbs, you can get into the region and matter. You want to be relevant. Premier League clubs, when you're in London, you care about your team generationally. That's what you need. Whether that's 30,000, 20,000, 40,000 or 70, it's relevance and connectivity. But you talk about a locality and I'm interested because the television rating inching in the right direction, 4% up year on year 2016, which is impressive in a television market where everything's naturally down. But when Manchester United play Manchester City, as they will this weekend, every fan of every team tunes in to watch. It's can't miss television. And if we're being honest, MLS doesn't yet have that national big game ratings pull. What has to happen for Seattle or Portland fans, strong locality, to care about a big game outside of the Northwest national pull? You know, say NYCFC playing the Red Bulls or Toronto, Montreal, must-see television. What steps have to be taken to Time, move Time, more work, building out the connection to your community. The NBA was a regional game before it had its first national package. You know, it was in the 80s where their regular season was not on national television. They started at Christmas time on NBC. So that was not that long ago. It's within our generation. I could remember that. So it's going to take time. How much time? I, I don't have the answer to that, Roger. I really don't. You know, I hope it happens sooner as opposed to later. I hope I'm around when it does. But it's going to take time. What are the big challenges facing the league right now? The things you are afraid of? What keeps Don Garber up at night? Well, some of the things that we addressed. You know, how do you grow a national audience? How do you address some of the needs of a very passionate and disparate group of fans? 
from traditional sports fans that are segueing over to soccer to soccer supporters that have their own connections with their teams. They care about their club, but they don't necessarily care about their club outside of its own local environment. How do we ensure that we're delivering our part to grow the game in the U.S. and Canada? How do we get over some of the challenges and chaos that we have with our federation right now and have more stability in upcoming elections? How do we ensure that our fans and players are safe on and off the field? I mean, Guys like me are thinking about nothing but problems and then how to address them when they happen. We've got to talk about Columbus Crew. You came to MLS from 16 years at the NFL. NFL franchises relocate all the time to business. But soccer, football in general, it's about fans and community. Do you see a difference between relocation-happy NFL and a soccer league MLS? Well, you know, I don't know that we look at ourselves in comparison to the NFL in any way. I think you've got to look at it in the context of that we are a North American league playing in a North American environment with a very different structure than the other football leagues around the world. No league, certainly no commissioner, wants to move a team. But you also can't survive if you have teams that are not economically viable. And if they're not economically viable in other leagues around the world, they don't spend or the federations might take them over, as you've seen happening in lower levels in the Premier League, they get relegated down and down and down to oblivion. Without promotion or relegation, which is not going to happen in Major League Soccer because of our structure, what do you do in a market that simply is the lowest in every measure, in attendance, in revenue, in ticket pricing, in sponsorship, in local television ratings? They had 13,000 people at their playoff game in the first round. These are things that you begin to question the viability of the league. They had the high television rating for the last round of the playoffs. They did. I think there's a lot of national attention in it now, so I wouldn't say that you'd want to be in a controversial situation to get the country to be paying attention, Roger, but we are and have been where we've been in Columbus almost since the beginning. The original owners have put almost $200 million into that club before the new owner took it over, who's done a lot of really great things. Hired Greg Bolthalter, has had success on the field, and still that team has struggled to be economically viable. He's not saying he's moving the team. He's saying that he's got to look to see whether or not that can happen while he's hoping to be able to engage in the city to see if there is a solution that might so, make that team more viable. So there is a possibility. Of a There's club. a possibility that the city has said to him, we're not going to talk to you if you're going to continue to look at Austin, and that creates a little bit of an impasse here. Not a little bit, but a lot of an impasse. But he's always been on a parallel path and hoped to have been able to achieve something. Here's what I'm interested in, because MLS has always been based on the soccer supporter culture that it's built. And there's so much to be rightfully proud of over here. Do you fear aftershocks from fans of other teams worried about the security of their local market ties, their own devotion? You know, I don't fear those aftershocks, Roger. I know that their supporters have been very effective in going out and creating a national narrative around this. And I not only understand that, I'm proud of that. I mean, ultimately, they care about their team. Are you surprised uh, by that? No, I'm not surprised at it at all. I mean, that doesn't happen in the NFL. It's a different kind of culture for their fan base. But at the end of the day, we need to have a team that can succeed that could continue to invest in having the kind of players and environment to be able to compete as we started early in this with the Seattles and New Yorks of the world. I mean, when you have a Toronto team that has 27,000 seats and has 31,000 that come to a game and Seattle that's got 45,000 at a game and you're selling out in Orlando and you've got a minor league team in Cincinnati, second division team that's got 20,000 people coming to their games and you don't have that in an established market by Columbus, 
with, in this case, an owner who is very committed, who has done a good job, has made the commitments in his each They were in the conference final, kind of scratch your head and saying, can this city support an MLS team? It's what the governor asked, changed his view, and I think people got upset with him. But Governor Kasich had said, I'm just not sure Major League Soccer can succeed in the state of Ohio. I don't think he said the state of Ohio. I think he said in the city of Columbus. You know, those are things that we're asking ourselves. Anthony Precourt's asking himself. Uh, those supporters who are engaged in the club believe otherwise, but it's a process that we've got to go through. You and I have talked about promotion and relegation before, which you mentioned. You've made it clear. Well, you know it's exciting from a fan perspective. For team owners who've invested millions or municipalities who've pumped in even more, it's not viable right now. That's what we discussed last time we talked. Here's what I wanted to ask you on this. Do you feel promotion and relegation is inevitable in the future, just not on your watch? I don't think it's inevitable, and I don't think it's got anything to do with me, Roger. It's got to do with whether or not you could continue to have owners and municipalities and sponsors and broadcasters invest in a league without knowing ultimately what teams are going to be in that league. So in today's world, the LA Galaxy would be relegated down to the USL. Their designated players, would they be sold? Would they go to Louisville or would they go to Cincinnati? And we have contracts with those players. They're members of a union. We have salary caps that are contingent upon our agreement with the union. This is not about Don Garber and a handful of owners deciding that there's no promotion relegation. It requires a total change of Major League Soccer as it exists today, which has done a reasonably good job, and I think you'd acknowledge, of building a viable professional league that millions and millions of fans can get excited about. And by the way, 3,000 employees, 680 players. Five years ago, this would be unthinkable. So I understand there is a group of people who think it would be fun, but this is about ensuring that soccer professionally could live for generations. And the benefit is what? The final game would be exciting? Do they actually think that our teams are not trying hard if they don't think that they're going to make MLS Cup? Do they think in the January or the summer window, all of a sudden we're going to take apart our salary cap? And a team that is in the bubble of the playoffs is all going to s- sudden spend $10 million. It'll be exciting, but it's just not possible. So this is not just a Don Garber issue. Absolutely I always, not. I always picture you as like the Yas Arafat, that peace <laughs> would never come on my watch. Throw will never happen under Don no. Garber. No, it is not at all about my personal point of view, Roger. It's not just about our own point of view. It's about our structure. You talk about selling players. We had Atlanta United's president, Darren Eels, on our show last month. And he said, MLS has, quote, almost been like a little island on its own, isolated from the rest of world football. And it shouldn't be frightened about being a selling club. Every club is in world football, apart from Real Madrid and Barcelona. He said, if MLS establishes itself as that, you'll attract better players. Players will want to come in. They can see it as a stepping stone. They'll have to be prepared to lose some players, but the reality is, by proof of concept, you're going to bring better players in and be able to take the transfer fees and reinvest them. Do you agree? I do. I think the price you pay for that goes back to what we've been talking about. How do you build a committed fan base, and how does that fan base care enough about one player? You lose Miguel Amaran, who's a pretty exciting guy, and Josef Martinez, and you have an audience that may or may not be core supporters. 
They're coming in because they're excited about being part of a new team, Atlanta United, and all of a sudden that player is gone. He's not going from Atlanta to D.C. He's going to Atlanta to Arsenal. England never, or Arsenal, never to be seen. Tyler Adams uh, to Europe. Right. But I don't want anybody to think that the league is an obstacle to whatever decision a club is going to make to sell a player. The Red Bulls want to sell Tyler Adams, Oliver Mitzlaff, and Mark D. Grand Prix, and Jesse Morris are going to make that decision. I think it's great to have young, promising American players in our league, but if the owner and its staff and management believe that that sale makes sense for them, they're going to sell that player. The league's not going to stand in its way. So you don't we don't have the ability a, to stand in that way. You don't feel a need to hoard these players? When, when he says the MLS has been like an island in the I past. think that's because there's not enough recognition of how great a player can be in order to be able to be valuable to the rest of the world. It's your point of view. Kids are waking up and they might be watching a different league. That dynamic needs to change. So if a player like Tyler Adams is developed in an MLS academy and goes over to star in the Bundesliga, that's a positive for Major League Soccer. If Miguel Amaran comes into MLS and he's not succeeding as well before he comes, he is successful, and then he goes to star in Arsenal, that's a positive. So I don't believe that it is a challenge. And by the way, I don't believe we're hoarding it. It's just we've not yet earned the respect the global soccer market. So when Patrick Vieira, Tato Martino, is saying, hey, what are you guys talking about? This league's pretty darn strong. Let's not look at MLS existentially that we don't get the game, yeah. right? We're doing a pretty good job, and we should be earning their respect, not just because of our commercial success, but because of what we're able to do on the competitive side. I'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the U.S. soccer president race going on around us as we speak. We haven't had a competitive election since, since I last had hair. And Sunil Galati yesterday announced he will not be running for the first time in 12 years. It is a Wild West time. We've got a contested election for the first time since 1998, including Soccer United marketing president and former MLS VP Kathy Carter. How do you handicap the race? Sunil has been a steward for this federation for 12 years as president. Frankly, I thought it took a lot of courage for him to step down because I think he believes that he could get elected but he thought this process was chaotic and negative for U.S. soccer. So his decision... You do think he could have got elected? I think Sunil thought he could have got elected. I don't engage in the political side of this, Roger, so I wouldn't know the answer to that, but I think Sunil believed that. I think there are a handful of really good candidates in the race. I've known Kathy Carter for 18 years. She's played as a youth. She's coached a youth club. She's played Division I soccer. She started for William & Mary for two years. She worked for the 94 World Cup. She worked for MLS. She's one of the original employees. She's worked for AEG, and she's been around this sport at all levels. She's been on FIFA committees and CONCACAF committees, and I think she's a very, very qualified candidate. But we're not endorsing Kathy Carter yet. Kathy's going to have to go and tell her story to the membership. She's going to have to tell her story to MLS and its owners. That story, I'm sure, is being created as we speak because I think she just announced, and I think it will be a very interesting race. And that's part of the good that has come out of this, because people are going to come out of the scene and basically represent different points of view, and the membership gets to decide. Do you expect MLS will endorse a candidate? Well, at some point we have to, because MLS has a vote, along with the USL and the NASL and the NWSL. We represent the professional council, and we will have to express a vote. But at this point, it's way too early for us. Will you nominate a candidate? Uh, We haven't decided that yet. But that's a possibility. That's a possibility. You're waiting to see if Andrew Shue gets into the race. <laughs> Come on, Andrew. Um, does this create a sense of transition and turbulence for you? Internally? Yeah. 
Oh, it does. I mean, Kathy's been one of our key lieutenants for a long time. Most people don't know who she is, which is not a bad thing. Kathy's been the leader of our commercial business and has led the sales for U.S. soccer for over 10 years as the president of Soccer Night and Marketing. Kathy has resigned. has taken a leave of absence. She'll resign if she's elected. If she's not elected, she'll have to figure out what she's going to do with her career. But we will have to and will figure out the right way to fill her shoes. And I'm sure there'll be no shortage of people that will look forward to that opportunity if they're presented with it. You a young man. I was a young man. <laughs> we were all young men once, Don. That's my other pod, Aging Today. 18 years. It's a long time at the top. How much longer do you have left in the tank? And how do you go about identifying a successor? My contract's up at the end of 2018. Our owners have got to decide whether or not they want to extend that contract. I've got a lot of stuff going on in my life. I've got to decide whether I want to continue in the role. That's a discussion that will take place, I'm sure, over the next 12 months and figure out whether or not I want to continue to lead this league. We absolutely need to think about a successor. That process has already started, Raj, so. I haven't been tapped yet, Don. It's a bloody hard job that you do to be a commissioner in a social media age. I mean, a commissioner is naturally a polarizing figure. Just speak to the other commissioners, Robert Manfred, Adam Silver, (laughs) Gary Bettman. Do you have some kind of secret commissioner fight club? (laughs) We do speak to each other. I never heard the word polarizing. I think you've got to lead, and when you lead, you've got to make decisions that are going to satisfy the needs of all your constituents, Raj. I've got players, I've got cities, I've got owners, I've got fans. We have sponsors and broadcast partners, and all of them kind of go into the pot, and you've got to make decisions. If you don't make the right decisions, you're fired. If you make the right decisions, you go forward, and you can't react to any one group over the other. And by the way, owners are a key part of it because those are the people that pay the bills and who ultimately commissioners report to. So I do speak to all of them. Gary Bettman more than others because he's just a guy that I've known. We do panels together. We tend to be around some of the same industry events. It's lonely, lonely for some more than others, but it's a pretty lonely spot to be in. You've got to deal with such complex stuff, so many issues. NYCFC Stadium, the Miami franchise, Columbus, Save the Crew. As a decision maker, a leader, do you ever make decisions that you know are right, but you also are fully aware of the pain it's going to cause and it's just dark? Every decision has complexity to it. And I've come to the point as I think about what's happening in our country now, which is incredibly divisive and partisan, and I realize that there are going to be almost as many people who disagree with every decision you make as are going to agree. And you got to have the courage and you've got to have the fortitude to be able to make those decisions, even if they're unpopular. And that's not fun. You know, as Hyman Roth said to Michael Corleone, right, this is the life we chose, right? We just don't have a choice, right? This is what you have to do. I will say that I surround myself with so many different people, not in my circle, but outside it. So when I'm making a decision, I'm speaking to confidants. You got to speak to those people who will tell you what you don't want to hear. You got to ensure you're doing enough research if they're broad strategic questions to understand what fans will think. I've now been engaging way more with our players. And for the first time in many years, I'm calling players. I'm bringing ex-players in so that they could advise us. We had Ziggy Schmidt as an advisor when he left Seattle before he took the job in LA. 
I'm talking to Richard Scudamore. I'm talking to Christian Seifert, the president the of the League and the Bundesliga. The Bundesliga. And I want to be sure that I've got as many inputs as possible so that I can use whatever judgment I have to have the right output. And to always have a good wartime consigliere. I'm to always been team Friedo, so I'm not good to talk Godfather quotes with. But is there anything you regret <laughs> in, your, in, in your 18 years? Is there anything you regret or that you wish you'd done differently in hindsight? I think if, if I had to do it again, I probably wouldn't have taken Jurgen Klinsmann on publicly. I believe now that in my heart, Jurgen was doing what he believed was the right thing to do. And whether I agreed with it or not, the commissioner of the league should have sucked it up and probably allowed him to do some of the things that he was doing, which I did not think were in the best interest of our federation of the league, and not dragged it into the public debate. And I've never said that publicly. I said it to Jurgen in an email when he left. He didn't respond to that, and I can understand why he's probably not that happy with me. Last question for you, Dom. When people, long after we're gone, write the book on soccer in this country, What do you think they'll cite as the watershed moment, the moment when soccer really and truly went over the top and became as big as it could be, or has it happened yet? I think it's happening, Roger. I don't think it's happened yet. I've always believed and felt very personally connected to this concept that we are focused on building the soccer nation. We're trying to get people to think of our country as a respected soccer country. Not qualifying for the World Cup, you take a knock on your backside when that happens. But think of where we are and think of the players being developed, the stadiums are being developed, a league that's vibrant, three network television contracts, lots and lots and lots of investment in so many different things. And that ultimately has been what our legacy will be, getting it to the point where it's fully expanded. That's when we're at 28 teams. This is the growth part of Major League Soccer. And then it's going to get to its plateaued, stable part. And then you're going to have to start thinking about, are there changes to the structure to the system that now you're already there. Can you play around with changes that could ultimately get you to the next level? But we're still climbing the mountain. In the early part, we're climbing up the mountain and we're getting caught in the mud and climb, climb, and you fall back and you climb, climb, and you fall back. And maybe each time you get a little bit higher, but now we're kind of getting up to the first peak. We're not there yet. And I don't think we're gonna be there till we beat Mexico in the Champions League, till we get further along in World Cup success until we're managing or capitalizing on the new over-the-top digital transformation where we've got new special broadcast agreements where soccer is the preeminent sport in the U.S. That hasn't happened yet. I think it's going to happen. I don't know that it's going to happen on my watch, but that's okay. My watch is just about getting it to as far as I could get it with our owners and our partners and and then somebody else can take it to the next level. And that's all we could ask for. I know I go to sleep at night every single day. I have left it on the field. And I know that I'd never lose sleep over that. I lose sleep over the things that are happening that I can't control. And those things are happening to us every day. So by the time Carl Beckerman grows back his dreadlock, <laughs> U.S. soccer will I miss Carl's dreadlocks. <laughs> oh, by the time they grow back, soccer, it will be happening. Don Garber, Godspeed to you and your league and all who sail in a MLS Cup 22 Toronto versus the Seattle Sounders this Saturday 4pm 
Eastern Time on ESPN. Courage.